You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Thanks for being here, uh, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. My question for you as we uh, open up to 1 Corinthians 12 uh, is this. <clears throat> have you ever been uh, to a symphony? Have you ever heard an orchestra perform uh, a symphony? Uh, it really is uh, an amazing experience. A number of years ago, Emily and I uh, went to the Dallas uh, Symphony Orchestra and uh, heard a symphony. And I've often described it, I might have even said this uh, before, at some point, but I felt like I left and like my soul had been cleansed. You know, it was like one of those things you just sit there and it's like so peaceful and amazing. Like I kind of maybe fell asleep for a second, but then I came back and the music was beautiful and there's all these movements of the music. It's like intense at one moment and then like still and calm at another moment. And sometimes the brass and the percussion comes in and it's big and loud. And then sometimes there's the subtlety of the, the string section that comes in and it's just this amazing experience when you hear all of these varied instruments working together uh, to, to make a beautiful sound. Uh, and if you were to show up at an orchestra early, uh, you would hear all of the individual instruments uh, warming up. You would hear the woodwinds and the strings and the brass and the percussion, and they each are individually unique in their own ways. And obviously within those sections, there are individual instruments that have their own particularities and uh, if you got there ahead of time, uh, it, some of them sound amazing and uh, beautiful all on their own. Some of them are a little uh, maybe hard to the ears, depending on how they're warming up at first. Personally, uh, I love the strings section, uh, one of my go-to uh, kind of study uh, music uh, categories is, is listening to uh, composers or instrumental music, and I love a, a violin or a cello that comes in and it's soft and I love listening to Yo-Yo Ma, if you know him, like he's, like he's at the top of my, uh, my study playlist. And it's amazing what all of these instruments can do individually, but it's even more beautiful uh, what they can do when they work together. Uh, and in many ways, the individual parts, uh, though they, they are unique in their own right, the beauty of a symphony is that all of them come together and work in unison to make, uh, to make uh, harmony and to make melody and to, to make a beautiful um, experience for those who listen. The same is true in the church because God has designed the church with its individual members to each play their part uh, in unison uh, within the expression of each local church so that God is glorified and the church is built up. So every member in the local church, every follower of Christ is gifted. Every gift is from the Holy Spirit. Every gift uh, we will see today is for the common good, for the building up of the church, and for the glory of God. And as all of the gifts of the body, all the people of the body work together in seeking to give of themselves and serve others, the church is built up and God is glorified. As beautiful as a symphony is in our ears, it must be that beautiful, if not more, when God sees the church in humility, exercising their gifts, for the good of others in the body of Christ so that it's built up. That's, that's how God looks at the local church when every member within the church is, uh, is exercising their gifts in the body for the good of the church and for the glory of God. And so we've been talking in this series about the local church, uh, understanding God's plan for his people. Uh, that God, when he saves us, he saves us into his family. Uh, when we come to submit ourselves under Jesus Christ, we become a part of his body. He is the head and we are the body. He is the father and we are the children. And in this family and in this body, these are the metaphors for the church. God has a plan for us and he wants to use his church to accomplish his plan in the world. Uh, this is the most exciting place to be uh, on planet earth, right here in a local church, because this is what God has said he's going to use to advance his glory and his gospel among the nations. We get to join in and be a part of that. And part of what God wants to do in the church, so that the reason these images or metaphors that God uses for the church are so helpful, is because it helps understand our part and how we're to relate to one another and what we're to do. Uh, last week, we introduced this idea by talking about the ministry of the church from Ephesians 4. 
uh, as, as we understand how God has called each of us. He's given us his grace. He's given us leaders not to do the work of ministry for us, but to equip the whole body so that all of us together may do the work of ministry. Uh, and to do the work of ministry is, a, in many ways, you step back and you think about it. God's called all of us to ministry. All of us have this task. In some ways, it's like saying you got this notification tomorrow in the mail that said, uh, you're playing in the orchestra down in Detroit next week. Uh, bring you know, bring your, your violin or bring your trumpet and, and get ready to perform. And you're like, I've never played the violin in my life. I, I've never played the trumpet in my life. How am I going to perform in the Detroit orchestra next week? Well, in many ways, when we think about what it means to be a part of the ministry of the church and serve in the body of Christ, sometimes as we look at ourselves, we go, God, I don't feel equipped. I don't feel like I've got what it takes to do whatever it is that you're calling me to do. Like, I'm not very gifted. I don't even, I don't even know that I, I can do, uh, I don't know, I can play music. I don't know if I can serve it this way. I don't even know, like, when I talk to another person, other than saying hello and checking in with each other, like, I don't even know what they need. How can I be of spiritual good to them? How, how could you use me is the question that all of us ask. And, uh, and when we think about the spiritual gifts, it's God's answer for the feelings of inadequacy that we have about carrying out the work of ministry, of serving in the church and through the church. It's God saying, by my spirit, I will give you what you need to build up my church. And so the spiritual gifts are the, the way in which God enables the church to do the work of ministry in order for the church to be built up. And so we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it begins this way. It says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, he's speaking before they came to faith in Christ, you used to be enticed and led astray by mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. See, Paul begins, we're, we're kind of dropping in right here in the middle of 1 Corinthians 12. Typically, our rhythm as a church, we preach through books of the Bible. And so here in a few weeks, we're going to actually start walking through the Gospel of Mark together, uh, looking at the life of Jesus and his teachings and going through that leading up into, into Christmas and Advent. Uh, but here on this series, we're looking at key passages that relate to the local church. And 1 Corinthians 12 is one of those passages. Um, and so uh, Paul is introducing kind of a new topic. We've just moved from the Lord's Supper. We actually are pretty familiar with 1 Corinthians 11 because we often read it uh, before we take the Lord's Supper as a church. Uh, but he moves to a new topic. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts. Now, if, you have, if you've been in the church or you've been a Christian for a while, there's a chance that you have questions like the Corinthians about spiritual gifts. In fact, I think many people either haven't thought much about spiritual gifts some people are really divided about spiritual gifts, particularly sign gifts like speaking in tongues and healing and miracles. But everyone, or I, say, I should say lots of people, uh, have questions about spiritual gifts. We're all like the Corinthians in a, in a, in a manner uh, because we want to know how exactly the spiritual gifts work, how they function in the church and what we're supposed to do. Um, and so uh, 1 Corinthians 12 picks up this new topic, but it's really kind of a pattern that Paul starts back in chapter 7. He's writing to them, encouraging them in some things in the beginning chapters. But starting in chapter 7, he begins to respond to questions that the Corinthians had asked him. And so this is like Q&A with, uh, you know, with the Apostle Paul. Um, and, and they're throwing out questions, and this is all in letter form. You know? So they threw out the question, and Paul's like, all right, let's hit this. Uh, you want to talk about marriage? Okay, let's talk about marriage. You want to talk about singleness? Let's talk about singleness. You want to talk about food offered to idols? Done. You want to talk about matters of Christian liberty? You got it. You want to talk about uh, lessons from Israel's past or the Lord's Supper? Okay, game. Now, spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts take up, really, the totality of chapter 12, 13, and 14. And uh, I'm going to talk mostly from chapter 12, but I'm going to make references to chapters 13 and 14 as well, because... In chapter 12, he introduces the idea, uh, the issue, broadly speaking, of spiritual gifts, particularly talking about their source as well as the diverse uh, array of gifts that God gives the body. In chapter 13, he talks about the necessity of love and exercising our gifts. You thought it was a chapter about marriage, which you can use it to talk about that, but it's actually about how we exercise our gifts in the body. And apart from love driving our service, our service will be in vain. And then chapter 14, Paul digs in and talks about tongues and prophecy uh, because they had more questions on that. He wanted them to have some clarity on what to think about it. So that's kind of the big picture of where we're at. 
Um, and, and I want to turn our eyes to what Paul says in verses 1 through 3. And he actually starts in an unexpected way. He's going to say that submission to the lordship of Jesus is the greatest sign of spiritual maturity. Submission to the lordship of Jesus is the greatest sign of spiritual maturity. See, based on what we know about the Corinthians is that they were particularly um, into displays of power, great uh, powerful speakers, rhetoric. They, they were into the, uh, the gift of uh, rhetoric and the ability to speak persuasively. They loved listening to Apollos because he was a powerful speaker. Uh, Paul, when he was with them, um, they, they didn't think he was very impressive. And when he wrote, they said that he wrote with great power. But when he came uh, in their presence, he wasn't very impressive. And, and so Paul, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, would talk a lot about the power of the cross and how uh, the, the Jews seek uh, signs of power and the Greeks seek signs of wisdom. But the gospel is foolishness to the Jew because of its uh, weakness um, and, uh, and, and to the uh, to the to the Jew because of its weakness and to the to the Greek because of its foolishness. Who would die on a cross? How could God conquer by by being defeated and by suffering? And and Paul says the power that you're seeking isn't in uh, external displays of great speaking uh, of external acts, but uh, in fact the the thing that you're thinking about spiritual superiority isn't really the topic that you should be considering at all. Instead, you ought to be thinking about spiritual maturity. Not who is more spiritual, not who has the better gifts, not who has the more impressive gifts. Paul says, I want you to think rightly about this. Notice what he says. He says, I don't want you to be unaware. I, he's not saying these, this topic is unimportant. You know, sometimes as Christians, when we come up against controversial topics where there's maybe debate uh, in, the, in the church over these things, it's easy to be like, I ain't got time for that. I don't, I don't want to mess with the debate. I just want to... I just want to go on with my life and not worry about these things, you know? Um, and I've jokingly said, uh, as it relates to like end times topics, like when Jesus is coming back, what that's all going to look like, you know, and how all that plays out, and rapture and the millennium and all these things. You may be like, Michael, I don't even know what you're talking about. But in all of those things, I've always said I have a simple, uh, a simple uh, truth that I want to hold on to, that Jesus is coming. We ought to be ready. Soon we'll go home. Like, I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen, but that's the foundational Point. And when it comes to spiritual gifts, it's kind of similar. Sometimes it's like, I don't know how all of this works, but uh, I just want to serve you, Jesus. <laughs> you know, and and so, but Paul doesn't minimize the importance of the topic. He doesn't uh, uh, critique them because they care about it. Instead, he wants to correct them. And he's saying, before you came to know Christ, you were led astray by false gods and idols, and so your previous manner of life didn't exactly prepare you to think rightly about spiritual things about spiritual matters and about spiritual maturity. And in fact, this is true in the world today, uh, that there is great interest in those who, who demonstrate great great power in their words or, or they have some uh, measure of charisma in their personality. We're drawn to powerful people and characteristics. We have a whole um, uh, industry of celebrities, people who are celebrities just because they're celebrities. Like they didn't do anything. They're just celebrities. And we're amazed by the, like their charisma and their personality. And sometimes just the crazy things that they do. And we make them celebrities, not because of anything they've actually done or accomplished or, uh, and those kind of things. We just love to, to kind of put that type of uh, person on a pedestal and, and look to them uh, for entertainment or look to them for, for wisdom or, or some type of fulfillment in our lives. And Paul says that's, that's not how it works in the church. That spirituality isn't just about doing impressive things. That first and foremost, when we think about what God desires for us, the way we measure spirituality is the degree to which we're submitted to Jesus. So he's saying that if no one by the Spirit can say Jesus is cursed, which is this full rejection of him. That's what was believed within Judaism at the time, that anyone who hung upon a tree was cursed. But Jesus hung upon a tree for our salvation to, to die in our place and for our sins, and then they buried him, and then he got up from the grave, he rose from the dead, and it's only by the Spirit of God in our hearts that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. That he died as our substitute, that he rose as our Redeemer, that He is our Savior. And to confess Jesus as Lord isn't really just a, a statement of intellectual assent. It's not just saying, yeah, check, Jesus is Lord. 
but it's actually a personal, it's a, it's a matter of personal allegiance that we're saying that when we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying that we surrender ourselves to him. We submit ourselves to him. And, and Paul is here saying, I love the way one commentator said it, to be truly spiritual, which is something that the Corinthians cared about. They wanted to know what was spiritual. They wanted the things of the spirit to be uh, reflective of their lives. He said, this commentator said, to be truly spiritual drives a per person neither to ecstasy nor to individualism nor to otherworldliness, but into the life of a local church as an expression of their personal commitment to Jesus as Lord and to his body here on earth. So we measure spiritual maturity not by great external acts of power. But we measure spiritual maturity by submission to Jesus. Which means that we look for the character of Jesus marked in our lives. We look for the example of Jesus in the way that we love and treat one another. We, we look for the life of Christ to characterize everything that we do. The degree to which the Spirit is at work in our life is dependent upon how we submit ourselves daily to him, right? When you, when you come to faith in Christ, I like to use the language of allegiance when it comes to faith in Christ. Every, every, no person, God has no grandchildren, right? Like nobody gets grandfathered into the family of God. He only has children who, who believe on Jesus for, uh, for salvation, for forgiveness of sin. And when, when a person comes uh, to, to faith in Christ, they transfer their allegiance from themselves or to whatever they've trusted in to Jesus alone. Jesus is our salvation. In our place, he stood condemned and rose from the dead, and we trust in him as our Savior. So we transfer our allegiance, but then the Christian life is daily aligning our allegiance with Jesus. Right? Because it's easy to kind of get our allegiance mixed up with work or with school or with a relationship or uh, with this over here or that over there. And, and things get busy and things get stressful. And before we know it, we just kind of, sh we just kind of drift our allegiance away from Jesus. And, and, and what Paul is saying here is that true spiritual maturity is the, the ongoing act of, of aligning our allegiance with Jesus every day. So as we think about what it means to be spiritual, as we think about how God wants to work in his church... He wants to do it through people who are fully surrendered to him. He wants to do it through people who are dependent on him and who have, who have aligned their allegiance with him in their everyday life. So it's a kind of a unique way to start this question about spiritual gifts. He, he wants us to think rightly and soberly about this. And uh, Romans 12, um, which is another passage about the spiritual gifts, uh, Paul will say, think soberly uh, about yourself. Think accurately about yourself don't anyone think too highly of themselves that their gift is so important or that their gift isn't important but instead we're to think soberly and, and part of that means to think rightly about submitting ourselves to jesus as the kind of the pathway for the work of the spirit in our life submission to jesus um, is a is a sign of the spirit's work in our lives and is the very means by which the spirit works in and through us but then he moves on in verses 4 through 11, and we're going to see that spiritual gifts are given by God through the Holy Spirit. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but I think important to understand. Given by God through the Holy Spirit to each believer for the good of the body of Christ. Some of this we looked at last week in Ephesians 4, so I'm going to go through it quite, kind of quickly. But look at verse 4. It says, there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. He's going to bring out this emphasis on unity and diversity. Unity uh, on, the, uh, on the sense of the source uh, of our gifts, that God is the source behind our spiritual gifts. Here in verse 4, really through 6, he, he demonstrates that though the work of the Spirit is central in the giving of gifts, it's actually a Trinitarian work. Notice all the members of the Trinity that are acknowledged. There are different gifts by the same Spirit. There are different ministries by the same Lord, which is a reference to Jesus. And there are different activities by the same God. God the Father produces each gift in each person. So God is the source behind our spiritual gifts. If you skip down to verse 11, after he lists the gifts in verses 8 through 10, he says, One and the same Spirit is active in all of these gifts, distributing to each person as he wills. So we see God provides everything the church needs by his sovereign grace. He provides everything the church needs. 1 Corinthians 12 says it's distributed to each person as God wills. Uh, just to kind of piggyback on some other passages that talk about spiritual gifts, Romans 12, 6 says that it's according to the grace that was given to us that we have different gifts. And probably my favorite passage is 1 Peter 4, verse uh, 10 to 11. It says, just as each one received a gift, use it to serve others 
as good stewards of the varied grace of God. So the grace of God comes to us in a myriad of ways in the spiritual gifts in order to build up the church. So God provides everything the church needs. But then a corollary kind of statement to that or a statement that follows that is that the church needs every member. God gives the church what it needs by gifting every member, but that also means that the church actually needs every member. That the whole body is necessary, and and this kind of cuts against the grain of what the the Corinthians were tempted to believe, that 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 those who had very impressive external gifts were, were seen as superior, and they were valued as greater. But Paul is saying to elevate people with certain gifts is ultimately to both devalue God and to devalue people because God is the source for every gift to every person. So to value some is to to neglect those whose gifts that you don't value, as well as to to devalue God, who is the giver of every good gift. And this is what uh, our passage, as we read it today, really brings out. As you think about the spiritual gifts, uh, we we talked a while back about the baptism of the Spirit, as it says in verses 12 through 13, that the baptism of the Spirit is what takes place when a person puts their trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell the believer. Um, And being baptized by one spirit into the body, being made to drink of one spirit, it says in verse 13, it says that the body is not one part but many. And and you have this kind of uh, this image uh, of of the whole body and how it works. And and like when you read this, if you don't think about the head, shoulders, knees and toes song, I don't know if you're doing it right. You know, like you think about how it's all connected and, you know, the I have some of the medical folks in here. I can't remember exactly what the femur bones connected to the hip bone and how how all that works. But we know that the body is structured in such a way that if one part isn't working, then it affects the other parts. And that's what Paul is saying here, that that God has designed his body, the church, in such a way that every part is needed, that the church needs every member. And and so uh, if if you just have uh, one big ear walking around without the other ear, or you just have one eye without the other eye, if you just a church made up of noses rather than uh, seeing the, uh, valuing the eyes and the ears, the whole thing, it gets all out of whack is, is the point that Paul makes. Um, some of our uh, elementary kids are here. Can you imagine walking around just with just with your nose, like you know, eyes. You know, you just have to sniff and find your way around, or you just have to use your ears and just kind of hear where everything's at. You don't understand what you're seeing or or what you're smelling. God's saying that each part is needed, and He goes on to say, and we stopped at verse twenty that as there are many parts, there are one body. It goes on in verse twenty-one. It says that I cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe with greater honor, and our, and our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which are respectable parts, uh, which our respectable parts do not need. And so he's saying that uh, even the things that we don't value, even, or the things that, that we maybe don't see or aren't prone to appreciate, he's saying all of them are necessary, that none can be deemed unnecessary and says instead God has put the body together giving greater honor to the less honorable so that there would be no division in the body but that the members would have the same concern for each other so if one member suffers all the members suffer with it if one member is honored then all the members rejoice with it now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it God has given the church everything it needs by an act of his sovereign grace and he continues to do so throughout the life of the church And the church, it needs every member. This is the the unity of the spiritual gifts that we have the source uh, in God. But then we also have the purpose, that the purpose is that the spiritual gifts are given to build up the church. We won't spend as much time on this because Ephesians 4, we looked at this last week. But in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, it says that the the manifestation of the spirit is given to each person for the common good. Other passages emphasize that the common good is the building up of of the church, or as 1 Corinthians 14, 5 says, it, it's the church would be built up, the, the value uh, of prophecy, uh, the need for prophecy so that understanding and knowledge can be passed on uh, is, uh, is in many ways, it, he's, Paul is saying, don't value the, uh, the impressive gift of tongues, but value prophecy because in it, the church is built up. We'll look at that in a minute, but uh, he's pointing out that the purpose of the spiritual gifts are not for our self-expression, 
They're not for platform building. They're not for uh, demonstrating our natural skills or abilities. They are for the building up of the church. And so when our gifts are used, when we look at those gifts, we may say, man, praise God for that person who has these gifts or that gift. But the end the result is praise God who's, who's gifted his body and look at how God is building up his body. And in many ways, I, I, I will get to this towards the end, but in many ways, I don't know that we always even know what our spiritual gifts are, but we see the results of our spiritual gift at work when the body is built up, when believers are served and strengthened in the body. And that brings us to the diversity of the spiritual gifts, the, the varied manifold ways of gr the grace of God that's given to the church through the spiritual gifts. In verse 4 uh, through 6, it speaks of the gifts as gifts, as ministries, as activities. Uh, there's these different ways of speaking of it. And this definition by Sam Storms, I think, is helpful. He says, spiritual gifts are capacities or abilities imparted to Christians by the Holy Spirit to enable them to exceed the limitations of their finite humanity in order to serve other believers to the glory of God. So in some way, spiritual gifts are not just your natural abilities that you enjoy doing, and so you do that at church, or you do that in the body of Christ. But there is a supernatural uh, empowerment through the Holy Spirit enabling us to exceed the limitations of our finite humanity in order to serve others to the glory of God. Now, I want you to see this chart. Uh, you probably won't be able to read it, but um, we'll post these so you can see it. But I just put together, these are the four main passages that speak of spiritual gifts in the Bible. Uh, and <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to run through each of them in just a minute. Uh, but there's a multitude of them. Prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, message of wisdom and knowledge, uh, performing miracles, gifts of healing, different kinds of ton tongues, interpretation of tongues, Faith, Romans talks about exhortation, service, leading, giving, mercy. Other passages uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about not only the gifts, uh, the capacities themselves, but the people like apostles, prophets, teachers. But then it goes on to talk about helping, administrating, different kinds of tongues. In all of this, literally, I think something that's important to say, when we think about the spiritual gifts, do you know that helping is as supernatural as healing? Do you know that, that leading, uh, giving direction and, and organization to something is just as supernatural as speaking in a tongue you do not know to help a person understand the gospel? All of these are spiritual and empowered by God. So look, let's look at uh, 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. I like Peter because he summarizes all of what we just looked at on that chart that you couldn't read, but you had to take my word for it. Peter said, let me break it down to you like this. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version. Each received a gift, so use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Amen. So there are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. Thank you, Peter. That's so helpful. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. And, and you can see how this is broken down. The, the gifts that are spoken of in 1 Corinthians um, there's a, a book by a guy named Tom Schreider on spiritual gifts that some of these definitions are from. He defines teaching as expounding, explaining, unpacking the word of God, imparting knowledge and wisdom based on truth already revealed. Faith is the measure of extraordinary faith and vision for the future. Healing and miracles. Healings perhaps refers to the healing of physical ailments like blindness, deafness, paralysis, various sicknesses where miracles perhaps refers to nature miracles or even things like exorcisms that we see uh, through Jesus and the Gospels and the Apostles. Distinguishing between spirits is the ability to discern between what is true and false, especially in regards to prophecy. Tongues, uh, we'll look at this in a moment more in depth, but here I'm going to define it as the ability to speak um, <clears throat> to speak to others in unlearned human languages um, and possibly uh, angelic languages. Interpreting tongues, the ability to translate and interpret what was said um, <clears throat> Uh, through the gifts of tongues, uh, helping and serving, uh, and mercy, all of these are kind of going together, providing tangible assistance to those in needs, literally helping the weak is the idea behind the, the gift of helping. Administration uh, isn't quite like um, the administrative assistant um, as much as it is uh, the idea of leading, giving direction or oversight uh, to something. Exhortation, the ability to urge and encourage others towards godly living. 
Giving is giving of one's money and resources, particularly in remarkable and unusual ways. See, no one is divided uh, over whether or not we are exercising our giving gift or our helping gift. We, we tend to be divided over the, the more outward gifts, the speaking uh, gifts, rather than the serving gifts. And I think a word is needed on this front as we think about this, the miraculous gifts or the sign gifts. So prophecy, which is spoken of here in 1 Corinthians 12, as well as in 1 Corinthians 14, I'm going to take and define as spontaneous revelation from God communicated to his people. Spontaneous revelation from God communicated to his people. Not all prophecy is predictive. Some of it's speaking to a particular moment, even the prophets in the Old Testament. When you look at the prophets in Hosea and Malachi, Haggai, all these, they're not only speaking of what's to come, they're, they're helping the people understand why they're experiencing what they're experiencing by reminding them of God's word. Some people define prophecy here uh, almost like preaching. Um, and I don't think that's, that's the, the route we should take. I think it's speaking of revelation that God gives. There are New Testament prophets. We see it in Acts like Agabus. There are others that aren't named. But I think a key verse for helping us understand prophecy is Ephesians 2.20. Because in Ephesians 2.20, it says that the foundation of the church is, is built upon, uh, the church, which it defines as citizens and members of the household of God, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ as the cornerstone. Now, I think some people think that the prophets is referring to the Old Testament prophets and then the apostles, but the ordering would suggest otherwise, that it's the apostles and New Testament prophets. There are prophets in the New Testament that, that God uses to spot, speak spontaneous revelation from God to his people. The church is established and built on the apostles and prophets, and, and the apostles and prophets' testimonies are recorded for us in the scriptures. And so I think uh, as we look at the apostles and the prophets, they, they have this extraordinary or foundational role in establishing the church and passing down divine revelation, ensuring this small group of 120 believers um, makes it through and keeps grounded in what God has said both in the Old Testament and what God is saying now through his apostles concerning Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. They have this significant role in passing down to us divine revelation recorded in both the Old and New Testament. And so I think that the, the sense of prophecy that's used here uh, is unique and extraordinary and foundational to the church and therefore isn't functioning today. Because if the foundation is the apostles and prophets, then for prophecy to continue in this way is for the foundation to continue to be built. I don't know if you've ever tried to build a foundation while the house is already standing, but it can be a little bit of a tricky thing. And so I think because of what Ephesians 2.20 says, one, one commentator, Tom Schreider, says, the sole and final authority of Scripture would be threatened if so-called prophets today give revelation which has the same authority of Scripture. Now, let me step back from this and say, I'm like 95% sure that's how I understand it. Um, but I think there are there is a sense in which many people feel like God is urging them to speak something to a fellow believer today, or to they have this sense of what God is doing and they want to encourage others with it. I think God works in many ways by his spirit through impressions laid upon the heart of his people to communicate. Uh, to others to encourage them, to build them up, to give insights perhaps as to how they see something playing out. And those impressions can be from God without being divine revelation and instead must be submitted to God's written revelation to us. And so God is at work uh, speaking uh, and, and prompting his people in various ways, but all of it comes back under the authority of God's revealed word and the scriptures. So uh, that's prophecy. Let's get a little stickier here and talk about tongues. The ability to speak known languages to others, possibly uh, the ability to speak an unknown language or to speak with unknown expressions. Now, I'm gonna, there are two places that we see tongues in the Bible, in Acts and in 1 Corinthians. So in Acts, there are three places, Acts 2, Acts 10, and then Acts 19. I, I spoke to this a few weeks ago, um, so I'm not going to go in depth here, but in each of those cases, the gift of tongues or the speaking of tongues serves to mark the new age of the Holy Spirit from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And if you're, if you're like, Michael, I have no clue what you're talking about, just hang with me and we'll, we'll try to tie it all together. But basically it's saying the old is gone, the new has come. The, the, the death and resurrection of Christ has brought about a new work of the Holy Spirit called the New Covenant. And in that new work, 
uh, God uses the gift of tongues to validate the move of the gospel from Jew to Gentile, the advancing of the gospel from Jerusalem out to the ends of the earth. And that's that's how it functions in Acts. Well, in, in, in Corinth, it seems a little bit different, but there's no reason, I think, to think that it means something else. Some people point to 1 Corinthians 13, 1, that says, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And so perhaps Paul is speaking here about some unknown language or unknown ecstatic expressions that are being used in the in the gathering of the church. Um, but the, the bottom line from 1 Corinthians, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 uh, through, through 28. The bottom line is that as the church gathers, everything is to be done in order and for the building up of the church. And so listen to what it says regarding tongues and prophecies. It says, when when, what then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn or a teaching, a revelation, another tongue or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. Verse 26, 27. If anyone speaks in another tongue, there is to be only two or at most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is not an interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. And then it goes to prophets. Two or three prophets may speak and that others should... Uh, evaluate, but if the, something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirit are subject to the prophet since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So the gift of tongues, which I, I think primarily is known languages that you didn't study, that you speak to others, can be used in the church if there's an interpreter. And some people would say, what's the point of speaking in a known language that you didn't study in the church? How would that encourage? If everybody speaks the same language, why would you do that? Well, the same is true. Why would you speak in an ecstatic language or some unknown language in the church if nobody else knows it? The point is, whichever one it is, is there is to be an interpreter because what God desires in the church is for the church to be built up through communicating God's word in an understandable way so that people can hear and understand the gospel, so that believers can hear and understand God's word, so that they can be motivated towards obedience and righteousness and holiness uh, and to living in the grace of God. And so according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, priority should be given to believers understanding God's word in the gathering. And when the church gathers, it's not to express itself or to have an experience, but it's to hear from God. And so tongues, if they have an ongoing place uh, in the church, as it's defined here in 1 Corinthians, it's to be done in the manner and the order in which Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians. And as we look at Acts, I think the point, and even here in 1 Corinthians, we're talking about one of the first early churches that Paul plants at 1 Corinthians. Here the gospel is moving, and when the gospel moves, God often confirms the gospel through these external acts or signed gifts. And I think that's true on the mission field today. I think we've seen people uh, that uh, I've heard stories and experiences myself in trying to communicate the gospel across language barriers where I'm trying my best to communicate, and, and unbeknownst to me, the person I'm speaking to is hearing and understanding something that I don't think they should hear and understand, and, and others that have that experience. And, and I, I think it's not a surprise to me that that's how God works as the gospel moves into new places. And perhaps that's how the gospel would work if it moved into new pockets even of our own community. But I think as we look at Acts, we see the role that God gives uh, of particularly of speaking of tongues with the move of the gospel into new places. And I think also the same is true with healing and miracles. Here, it's not talking about whether healings and miracles happen, but whether or not there are people that are gifted to heal and to exercise miracles, that these people would somehow be able to heal and do miracles on some sort of regular basis, or perhaps just upon a one-off uh, basis. Um, but there's some sense in which these miracles or healings are being done. Uh, and, and again, the pattern of the Gospels and, and the book of Acts is wherever the apostles go, if you just look up signs and wonders in the book of Acts, watch how the signs and wonders are always done by the apostles, by the apostles as they move into town. Signs and wonders are done by the apostles or by Philip when he goes into Samaria. The Gospel moves from Jerusalem to Samaria. And then when it goes to the Gentiles, when Peter's ministry is being done, when Paul's ministry is being done, there's this, there's this sense of signs and wonders being done just like tongues in confirming the, the work of the gospel. Um, and from what I can see and what I, what I understand is I don't want to say <clears throat> that God isn't doing this today because I, in fact, believe he does heal. In fact, we're commanded to pray for him to heal. And we're expected to believe upon God to do beyond what we can uh, imagine being done for him to do miracles. 
And I think that God can and does heal and do miracles, whether or not it's done through a gifted individual being the one to do it. I believe it's done through God answering the prayers of his people. Um, and so as we step back from all of this, we, we take away what we've learned. We learn that God has provided gifts through his spirit to build up his church. Paul will go on to say that no one has all the gifts, right? There's not an omni-gifted Christian. No matter how, how much somebody may look gifted, no one is omni-gifted. And every believer has at least one gift, but we don't have an exhaustive list. You notice the list that we're given in all those places? None of them include all the other gifts. Each gift had a different gift that the other one didn't have, though there is some overlap. And I think the truth is we probably don't know what all of the gifts are. But we know we at least have one gift because God has gifted every believer by his spirit and uh, according to his will. At least one gift we see. But you know what the Bible doesn't give us? This is astounding to me. The Bible doesn't give us any guidance on how we are to discover our spiritual gifts. Now, I know you might have taken a spiritual gift inventory. <clears throat> and they can be helpful. Don't, don't, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this somewhat tongue-in-cheek. But that's not, that's not, the Bible does not give us a spiritual gift inventory to take in order to determine how we know what our gift is. So how do we know all this amazing stuff that God has provided? How do we know how to discover our spiritual gift? Let me suggest these five things. Based upon uh, kind of the pattern of what we see Paul saying here. <clears throat> Find out where the church needs help. God provide spiritual gifts in order to build up the church. So where does the church need help? Because it's probably there that spiritual gifts are going to be exercised for building up of the church. And then pray for the needs of the church. You know, Jesus said, I love uh, in, in Luke chapter 9, he said that the, the harvest is ripe. The fields are bountiful. The, the, the need is for laborers to go out into the harvest and to share the gospel. And you know what he then told the disciples to do? He said, I want you to pray that God would raise up laborers to go out into the harvest. And then follow what happens. Do you know who he sent out into the harvest? The people that he told to pray. His disciples. He said, pray for God to raise up laborers to sit out into the harvest. And he said, you know what? You're in. You're the laborers. I'm calling you. I'm not saying that just because you pray for a need in the church that you're going to be the one to fill that need. Some of you are like, I'm going to be careful with what I pray here, right? Um but we ought to be praying for God to build up the church for the needs of the church. And as we do that, we should expect God to direct us. Maybe there's a need that we're praying for that God burdens us for. And we think, man, I need to be a part of that. Ask yourself, what do I enjoy doing? Now, I don't think that our spiritual gifts are just natural abilities or inclinations. But as we use our gifts, I think we will find great joy. So we ought to think about what it is that we enjoy doing. And then seek godly counsel. Sometimes... Uh, and I've seen this in my own life as people have spoken into my own life. They've encouraged me in certain directions, things that they've seen in my life. Listen to godly pastors and mentors, a small group leader, mature Christians, and, and, and ask, how do you see God using me? What things do you see God doing through me? Maybe, maybe you have a, an insight and a gift of encouragement or exhortation that, that maybe from, from your perspective you don't see, but God, uh, other people, God will use other people to help you see that. And then finally, serve. Same Storms, he said this, I, I think this is a, a great point, um, and we'll wrap up with some encouragements to think about our serving. He said, instead of first asking, what is my gift? Ask the question, who is in need? If God's people would look outward before they look inward, they will encounter the empowering presence of the Spirit to equip them for every good deed. If you're still bewildered by what may or may not be your spiritual gift, ask, act first and ask later. If we would devote ourselves to praying, giving, helping, teaching, serving, and exhorting those around us, the likelihood greatly increases that we will walk headlong into our gifting without ever knowing what happened. Amen. He said God will more likely meet us with his gifts in the midst of trying to help his children than he ever would while we take spiritual gift analysis tests. Did you get that? That God will more likely meet us with our gifts, with his gifts, in the midst of us trying to help his children. I think this is why the, the, the Bible doesn't give us how we are to discover our spiritual gifts. Instead, you know what it does time and time again? Jesus started it. He said, you want to be great? Be a servant. Jesus said that I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus says that a servant isn't greater than its master. 
What you found your master doing, the servant should be doing likewise. Jesus said that not only should you love God, but you should love your neighbor. In fact, how we serve God primarily is through serving others. Time and time again, the pattern of the scriptures is to call us to serve, not to discover our spiritual gifts, but the the belief is that God will meet us in our serving to gift us for what we need. Now, what does this mean in the local church? Does this just mean serving on the setup and teardown team? You know, the gift that you have to serve on the tear, setup and teardown team is to set your alarm. That's the gift that you have to serve uh, to serve on the setup and teardown team. Is this just talking about serving with children uh, in our kids' classes or in worship care? You're like, well, I know that. I don't know if I'm gifted, but I know I've been asked. You know, to to serve in that way. It's I, I've served I've served in, in, in churches with a thousand people, with a thirty thousand membership, and with thirty. Five membership, And you know in every one of those churches, often the number one need was for people to serve kids. Doesn't matter if you've got thousands of people or tens of people. Often the greatest gift is to serve the, the least of us running around. To invest in the next generation and passing on the gospel. Are we just talking about that? I, I don't think that's what is the, the only thing that it's talking about. I don't think that Corinth was uh, set up with the worship care program and uh, with the set up and teardown team, right? Like, I don't think that's the picture. I think that that is an expression of it. But you know what I think the, the first and foremost way we serve each other is by what you did before you came into service today. It's by the conversations you have. It's by the, the time that you reached out to one another outside of our gathering. It's the times that we're together in our small groups. It's the time as our church is gathering together to pray for the future. It's when we're thinking about how do we reach our community with the gospel? How do we reach campus at the University of Michigan and Eastern Michigan with the gospel and raise up laborers to be sent out to impact the nations for God's kingdom? How do we use our lives in the marketplace and wherever God calls us to be about his work? It's God gifting us in those moments to to help us encourage and build up the church in holiness and in mission. And it's when you exhort a brother and sister to not be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin, but to to repent and come back. It's when you share and confess a burden that you're walking through and somebody meets you and prays for you in that moment and exhorts you and encourages you. It's when there's a need in the the church and somebody says, you know what, I'm going to organize things so that people can get meals for uh, going through this struggle or this problem. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to lend my uh, I'm going to give myself to serve so that I can help put together a plan so we can we can set up or tear down better so that we can better uh, do outreach in our community or I'm going to give myself. I don't know if God will meet me in doing this, but I'm going to give myself to serving kids, which I feel like are aliens and I don't know how to talk to them or treat them. I'm going to give myself to serving them because I believe God wants them to come to know Christ and to be built up in Christ and for the church uh, to, to see it flourish as we reach kids from the nursery all the way to senior adults. I want to give myself wherever there's a need, God, for you to use me. Act first, ask later. What's my gift, Lord? I don't know, but I see this need and I'm going to give myself to serve. That's the spirit and the heart that Christ has called us to. I wore my TCC shirt today because we typically wear these if you serve kids and I thought it'd be nice to wear a t-shirt at church today, um, which you can do anytime. But, um, but I'm reminded as I, as I wear this on a Sunday morning, I see people wearing it, that some are in here serving and leading us in music. Some of you are in here serving one another in your conversations and encouraging and building each other up. Some got here serving before you saw them, before you woke up building and setting things up. Some are going to be here after you leave serving and doing things. Some right now, as we're sitting and receiving God's word, are serving kids or checking on this with security or do something like that. These are the things required for our body to function and for us to grow. And God is giving us everything we need, but he also needs every one of us to give ourselves to serve the body and dependence on him. And as we think about what it means to to serve God, what should mark our spirit and our hearts and our lives as we serve, just consider this. I put together these four thoughts from 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and then 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. Here's how we should serve. Serve in dependence on God. 1 Peter says, if you speak, speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. You're not speaking your own opinion, but speak in humility and recognizing that God has spoken. If you serve, serve in full dependence on God and the strength that he provides. Serve in dependence on God. 
And our inadequacy, God meets us with his gifts to enable us, to supernaturally empower us to serve others. I have no idea what I'm going to say when I have lunch with this friend, God. Give me your words. I have no idea how I'm going to teach this lesson to these, these kids or to these adults or to do this or to do that. But God, help me. I'm, going to, I'm, like, I'm like that little boy who brought Jesus his fish and his loaves of bread. He says, I don't have a little, God, but will you take my little and will you make it what you need? To serve others. That's the spirit of serving in dependence on God. And then serve to display the love of God. 1 Corinthians 13, I joked, I said it's not a passage about marriage, though it certainly uh, could well be applied to lots of different situations. But in the context of 1 Corinthians, it's to the spiritual gifts. If you do all these extraordinary things, but you're not marked by love, what good is it? So in your serving, whether it's the little ones or the old ones, is your serving marked by love that's patient? That's marked by love, that's kind, that doesn't envy, isn't boastful, it isn't arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not irritable, doesn't keep a record of wrongs, finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, it bears all things, it believes all things, it's optimistic, not just gullible, hopes all things, endures all things. We ought to serve to display the love of God. Very tangibly, God has told us what love looks like on display. We give ourselves to others, and doing so, display the love of God. And then we serve for the glory of God. 1 Peter 4 says that as we use our gifts of dependence on God, it's serving each other, it's for the glory of God. God gets the glory. We don't walk away and go, man, we're awesome. Our church is awesome. Everybody's doing all this stuff. It's, man, God is awesome. Working in his church, just as he planned. And then we serve for the good of the church. We don't just ask, what's my gift? We say, where's the need? And God, I want to be a part of meeting that need. Empower me by your spirit. God plans to use you and me to build a church. He intends for us to be dependent on his spirit and on his grace. You need me. I need you. We need each other. And when we, and we trust in God's grace and his spirit to empower us to serve one another for the glory of God, you know what that sound is? It's not the sound of a symphony. It's the sound of the church, each member doing its part, empowered by the Spirit for God's glory. That's what he's calling us to. That's how he intends for the ministry of the church to be done. That's what he wants us to be a part of. And we don't do it in our own strength. We do it in the strength that Jesus provided through the Spirit, right? The one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's fix our eyes on him. And watch how he empowers us to build up the church and to glorify him. Let's pray.